0: Wonderful to see all your faces today and uh, how grateful, how very, very grateful I continue to be, to feel about being in this place uh, with all of you here at Polly's Island. There's been so much hospitality, so many warm gestures of welcome, and I really wake up every day hugely grateful, Um, and I'm so thankful for that. We continue this morning in our sermon series looking at stories of Jesus, stories of things Jesus did, as well as stories that he told. And today we're going to look at a story of something Jesus did, a miracle he performed, that time when he fed 4,000 men, women, and children out in a barren place. This story is no doubt well known around here, but its full significance can sometimes be missed. So let's dive in and wrestle with it. But before we do that, let me pray. Lord, as your scripture has now been opened to us, send your spirit to open our hearts to your word, that we might receive it gratefully. That we might inwardly digest it and that we might be spiritually nourished by it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning's story comes from St. Mark. Uh, in the events that, uh, that we've read about they transpire around a large lake up in the northern part of Israel. It's known as the Sea of Galilee. Some of you have perhaps been up to this, to this lake. It's where Jesus spent much of his childhood. Uh, he lived in one of those lakeside villages. And I think it's helpful to keep this geography in mind as we work through the passage, because if you want to grasp everything that Mark is communicating through this story, you've got to look to the east, and then you've got to look to the west, and then you've got to look back to the east side of this lake. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look to the east, and then to the west, and then back to the east side of this lake. First, we're going to look over to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus sets up an enormous buffet, an enormous buffet despite the fact that there was hardly anything in the kitchen when he started cooking. And next we're gonna look to the west, to the other side of the lake where we meet some malcontents. What's going on with these sourpusses? What's their problem? We're gonna think about that. And then we're gonna look back east because that's where Jesus ultimately goes. And on his way in a boat, he gives a crucial lesson to his closest friends and followers, and we need to hear that lesson too. So let's set sail. It's east, west, and then back to the east again. Now we know from the end of chapter 7 that uh, Jesus is now in an area called the Decapolis. That's a group of 10 cities that are on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And that word itself, Decapolis, is telling because these 10 cities were mainly populated by Greek-speaking people, Gentiles. In other words, Jesus is among non-Jewish people. And he's out teaching and healing, and so a huge crowd amasses around him, and that's not surprising at all. And this crowd gets hungry. There's not been a proper meal, it seems, for several days. And as we learn in verse 4, there's no supermarket nearby. There's not even a 7-Eleven. There is nothing to buy. There's no food at hand. But there were evidently a few boy scouts in the group. A few of those always-be-prepared types. I was a boy scout. And these little planters produce a batch of loaves, seven loaves to be precise, and a small number of fish, not nearly enough to feed thousands of people but it's more than enough for Jesus to work with. And so he puts on his apron and gets to bacon. And then as you see in verses 6 through 9, there's a miraculous multiplication. 4,000 people find fishes and loaves in their hands, not to mention some enormous doggy bags left over. Now the Greek word that we read as basket, seven baskets of leftovers, that does not refer to something that you put Easter eggs in. That actually refers to a basket that is large enough for a person to get into an enormous basket, it's an extraordinary miracle. Jesus opens an enormous buffet there out in the desert. Yet beyond the miracle itself, this event is brimming with significance. Let me say a couple things about this by way of explanation. First, and despite impressions and suggestions sometimes by New Testament scholars to the contrary, this miracle is not just another version of what we read about back in Mark chapter six. Uh, That's another feeding miracle. These are not uh, two accounts, you know, two variants of one common event, because there are, in fact, a lot of differences in the details. In Mark 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people, and they've only been with him for one day. But here in Mark 8, we see Jesus feeding 4,000 people, and they've been with him for three days. These people have much better self-control. They can go three days without... If I was was then and there, I would be in the first group, the group that got to eat at the end of the first day of time with Jesus. The point is this, they are similar but distinct events, and especially distinct is their theological significance. Their theological significance. So you need to pay attention to the numbers to appreciate this. In both stories, Jesus creates something from nothing. He does what only God can do because he is revealing that he is God, God with us, God with all of us, Jew and Gentile alike. Back in Mark chapter 6, Jesus multiplies bread and fish in a Jewish region, mainly for Jewish people and that's his way of showing that God is still with and for the Israelite people, the Hebrew people he's still with them, he's still their God that's confirmed by the 12 leftover baskets of fish and bread because there were 12 tribes in Israel yet God has not just come for Jewish people for Hebrew people, he's also come for non-Jewish people. And so today in Mark 8 we see Jesus in a non-Jewish region. In a Gentile area. And he's revealing that God has come for these people too. And that's confirmed by the seven baskets of leftovers. In Jewish theology the number seven was used to represent the nations. All the nations of the world. And the number seven is also as many of you will know. Uh, it's the number associated with Sabbath. The, the good finishing of creation. With God's uh, perfect uh, rest and blessing. And so what this story is communicating is that God's compassion and care and provision are extended to all types of people. That is the message that Jesus is broadcasting here. Which means, by way of application, that God is not just the God of the Western part of the world, of Europe and America and maybe Canada. A lot of people these days have started thinking like that when it comes to Christianity. They think Christianity is for the West, people who live in the Western part of the world, Islam is for the Middle Eastern part of the world, and Hinduism is for the Indian subcontinent. And you could go on and on. But that's not what we find here in Scripture. Because Scripture teaches through stories like this one that the blessing and the call of Christ transcends ethnic and national and cultural boundaries. So don't, don't make Christianity an ethnocentric religion. That is mainly for, think that it's mainly for people who live in America or Britain perhaps. People with a particular Western cultural inheritance. Don't think that way. Jesus would be aghast time to move on it's time to move west to the other side of the lake which is where Jesus goes in verses 11 through 13 it is a proverb that there was never a feast yet from which someone did not go away unsatisfied and let's just say that the people Jesus meets on the west side of the of the lake some guys that we know as the Pharisees uh, they would have heard about the big bank buffet that was over on the east side and they ain't happy about it. They're dissatisfied. This is displayed in the question that they, they, that they have put to Jesus immediately. They say, hey Jesus, would you show us a sign from heaven? Show us something that will validate your ministry, validate your authority. And isn't that ironic? But not in the Elena Morissette sense of the word. What the Dickens is going on here? What more could these guys want? Now it's almost certain, here's something you need to know about this passage, it's almost certain that these guys would have heard about what happened back over on the eastern shore. That miracle of fish and loaves for thousands of people, it would have hit the headlines. Word like that travels fast. So why are they asking for a sign? There's just been a sign. There's been a mighty sign. The clue is in the particular type of sign that they're after. The word used here is not the Greek word that is typically used for miracle. Mark has another word that he uses for miracles. The word that's used here refers to a raw demonstration of power from on high. A raw demonstration for power on high. These Pharisees, in other words, they want to hear God from heaven directly and unambiguously validate Jesus as his spokesman, as his son. They want to know where Jesus gets his power from because they've in fact convinced themselves that his power is not from God, but that it's from Satan. Now, if you rewind to Mark chapter 3, you get a sense of this. If you go back to Mark chapter 3, the Pharisees, the scribes, the other dukes of divinity up in Jerusalem, they make up their mind that Jesus' power doesn't come from above, but that it comes from below. By the prince of demons, he drives out demons. That's what they say. That's how they put it. That was their judgment. And by this point in Mark's story, that perspective, that judgment is fixed. It's become firmly entrenched. It's not budging. And so the Pharisees' request for a sign from heaven should be taken as essentially disingenuous. Let me put it like this. If they can accuse Jesus of being an agent of the devil for casting out demons, then they will find a way to see evil in every and any good thing that he does. If he heals a broken body on the Sabbath, they'll say, oh, you're breaking God's law. That's evil he feeds thousands of hungry people like he's just done they'll say oh he must have made a pact with the devil they don't really want a sign they want evidence evidence that can be used to silence jesus to put an end to jesus that's what they're really after jesus of course recognizes this he wasn't born yesterday and in response he sighs deeply verse 12 He sighs in response to the Pharisees' demand for a sign. Now the Greek word here that we translate as sigh, that is not just a noise you make when you're a little bit tired out or when you're slightly knackered, as they would say in England. This refers to a deep groan from the bottom of one's bowels and heart, from the depths of one's being. It's a groan of exhaustion, of frustration. You can't make any progress with these people. Jesus feels like Moses... Felt in the face of the grumbling and stubbornness of the Israelites back in the Old Testament. They were out wandering in the desert for 40 years. It's very clear that Jesus feels like Moses here from the wording that's used in this text. He doesn't say, second half of verse 12, he, sa- he doesn't say, hey, why do you guys want a sign? doesn't say that. He doesn't say, why does this group want a sign? He says, why does this generation want a sign? That's Old Testament language. Those are the exact words that Moses used when he rebuked the Israelites for asking God for a sign after they had already seen tons of miracles. Same thing's happening here. Just like the Israelites under Moses, the Pharisees before Jesus are implacable. They won't budge, they won't budge. Have you heard the story of the two theologians debating a a finer point of theology, a doctrinal matter? This is what theologians do sometimes. And these two guys were both convinced that their view was absolutely right. But one of them was especially convinced on this day. And so he asked God, validate my view. He said, God, if I'm right, would you send a bolt of lightning to strike down that tree up there so that the other guy will see that I'm right. Now, as it happens, he was right on this particular issue. And so God was happy to oblige and lightning came down and struck that tree. But his companion remained firmly unconvinced. That was just a bizarre act of nature. Don't overinterpret. And so the man, you know, continued pleading and debating and arguing. He asked God for another sign, another validation. God, would you cause the earth to split open ahead of us? That will show him his folly. And again, God obliged. But his debating partner was unpersuaded. Oh, that crack in the earth, you know, that's just a small earthquake. It's a fluke. These things happen. Don't overinterpret. Uh, The theologian at this point is at his wits end because he just knows he's right and so he pleads, Lord give me a third sign, something that will be an indisputable validation. And again God heard, so as the two men continued to walk along, all of a sudden the clouds parted, a beam of light came down and a large voice thundered from on high, his view is in fact the right view. And immediately the man looked at his companion, there, now are you finally convinced? And his companion said, no, now it's just two verse one. (laughs) And so it is with these Pharisees who are disingenuously demanding of Jesus profound signs from heaven. In truth, they're set against him. They're blind. They have eyes, but they fail to see. They've made up their minds. And what more can Jesus do for someone who's made up his mind? Now, in the wider context of Mark's gospel, this stubbornness that we see, this blindness of the Pharisees, It's actually not entirely shocking. We've seen it already. We see it back in Mark chapter 3. You see it again in Mark chapter 7, just before today's text. It's not entirely surprising. But what is surprising, however, what is confounding, is the fact that there are some other blind people in this story. And guess who? None other than the 12. Jesus' closest friends and followers. They're blind too. This is what Jesus discovers when he gets back in the boat with his posse... ...to head over back to the east side of the lake. So let's get in the boat and let's listen to the conversation that they have. Look again, if you would, at verse 14 through 18. Everybody piles in the skiff... ...and as they make their way, Jesus starts reflecting on the problem of the Pharisees... ...and he uses the metaphor of yeast. In the the New Testament, this is generally a negative metaphor. He said, Jesus says, just as a tiny bit of yeast can dramatically alter a big batch of dough, so too can the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees spread through people. It can go viral, and it can poison their minds against God and his Messiah. It's a pretty straightforward point. But the disciples aren't listening. They're scouring the boat for calories. Oh dear, we have no bread. What are we going to do? I'm so hungry! That's what they're thinking. Not listening at all. And gang, it's that comment... The fear, the anxiety, the worry that it represents, that's the rub. That's the issue here. It reveals the disciples' own forgetfulness about the reality of Jesus. It reveals their own shocking blindness. They have, have they not just witnessed 4,000 people being fed in the desert and then a few months earlier, 5,000 people in the desert? Yet yeah, both of these miracles seem to have melted right out of their memories. Melted away. If they had remembered them, Logically, there would be no panic in the boat about whether or not supper was going to be on the menu. The disciples have eyes, but they're failing to see. They have ears, but they're failing to hear, verse 18, just like the Pharisees. Just like the Pharisees. And if this spiritual amnesia, this blindness is not checked, if it's not upended, it will worsen. It will metastasize into hardness of heart. Verse 17. By the way, here's another, Rob. Here's another issue. This very same thing can happen to us. It does happen to us. It's easy for you and me to look at this passage. It's tempting to look at this passage, to read about the disciples' blindness and to gasp. How could they have possibly been worrying about where they're going to get bread for supper when Jesus has fed thousands, when they have the ultimate baker in the boat with them? These guys are absolute idiots. But the better question is this what's wrong with this idiot because I can do the same thing and so can you. If you look through my journals from decades past even years past you'll find two very interesting types of entry. One type of entry are records things that I've written of God's faithfulness and God's provision and care housing when it seemed impossible to find a new car a gift driven for me from someone all the way across the continent of North America Tuition for seminary when I didn't know where the money was going to come from. One lady, when I got to Canada some years ago, even took me on a shopping spree. She said the Lord prompted her to get me some warm Canadian clothes because I showed up with only my South Carolina attire and that wasn't going to work up there. (laughs) Lots of entries. And then interspersed with these entries, there's another type of entry. And these entries, which come sometimes weeks, even days after the entries of provision, they're entries that reveal anxiety and fretting at times feeling of destitution. How am I gonna get by? I don't even have enough money for a beer. My car broke down, I can't get to work, I'm gonna lose my job. Taxes were a lot higher than I thought. Don't know how I'm gonna swing the budget. Losing sleep, Lord, why don't you care for me? Where are you? There's no bread in this boat, I'm gonna starve to death. I assume the worst, I'm forgetful, sometimes very forgetful, of what God has done. We see this in the disciples this blindness of the reality of God with us, and it is endemic to the human condition and also to the condition of many of those of us in the church. One wise commentator, the 19th century Archbishop Richard Trent, you probably never heard of him, that's okay. Uh, He was a well-regarded New Testament scholar, but he was also a man of rare spiritual insight. And what he says about this, I think, rings true, certainly in my own experience, and I I think you'll probably relate as well. This is what he wrote, commenting on this passage in the unbelief that we see in the disciples. He says, we must not be ignorant of man's heart and the deep root of unbelief that resides there. All former deliverances and acts of provision are in danger of being forgotten. The mighty imposition of God's hand into our lives can fall right out of our memories, and so each new difficulty and challenge can feel insurmountable as one from which there is no possible escape. How's that for pinning the tail on the donkey? But that's not all that needs to be said. Because the good news is this, Jesus Christ has come to ensure that our blindness, that our spiritual forgetfulness does not metastasize into hardness of heart. And just so we're on the same page, when I, when I use that phrase hardness of heart, what I mean is a state of existence whereby you, you see Christ, you begin to see God as being against you, as being a source of affliction in your life, as being an opponent, someone who is not here to look after you, someone who does not have your best interest in mind. That's hardness of heart. And the spiritual blindness that can lead to that, it has to be checked. If you leave it alone, it won't leave you alone. It can't be contained over in the corner. It's like a bag of potato chips. You can't just eat one of them. So what is the remedy for this spiritual blindness? We don't want it to metastasize into hardness of heart. We all struggle with this. Based on what Jesus says in the boat, in verses 19 through 22, there are three aspects of this remedy to be highlighted. So let's survey these and if your neighbor is snoozing, now would be a good time to nudge them and wake them up because they're gonna to wanna to hear this. First, the blindness, the spiritual blindness has to be named. It's gotta be called out. You've got to own your condition. We've got to remember that we have spiritual amnesia. It afflicts all of us. And we've got to help each other do this. That's what Jesus does for his disciples. Verse 18, he calls them out. He says, hey, do you guys have eyes but fail to see? Yes, yes you do. You have eyes but you're failing to see. Now in practical terms, this means that when we fall into fear or anxiety or worry, when we feel overwhelmed or destitute by some hardship, some unmet need we've got to recognize that in that moment, in all likelihood at some level, we've lost sight of God's track record, of his provision and faithfulness up to that point in our lives, we've got to recognize that, doing this by the way does not mean that everything is going to be easy and go the way that we want it to go, that's not what it means we do this because it reminds us, it gives us an awareness that Christ is still with us, he's been with us, he will be with us we have to feel that just like we feel the anxiety, just like we feel the worry, just like we feel the fear. That's part of what it means to live in faith. In faith, as one famous old minister used to put it, faith is the refusal to panic. Let me say that again. Faith is a refusal to panic. Second, and related to this, we've got to jog the memory. That's what Jesus does in verse 19 and 20. He looks at his disciples and he says, Hey, guys, let's remember what we've seen so far. Had 5,000 people at that buffet, had a lot of leftovers, yes sir, 12 baskets, and we had 4,000 people at that buffet, how many leftovers, yes sir, 7 baskets, large baskets, we're not just talking about a wee snack for later on, an enormous amount of food, an enormous amount of leftovers, we have to take stock of, we have to meditate on God's past actions of faithfulness and provision, his radical generosity in our lives, his presence in our stories and in the story of this church. And I know enough about the story of this church to know that where we are right now is a miracle of God because Mike's been telling me about it and Rick's been telling me about it. And in all of that, we find reconfirmation that that the Christ who has been with us remains with us and that he can and will continue to meet our needs. Not all of our wants, but all of our needs, and he knows what they are better than anybody else. And then third and finally, and perhaps most importantly, There's what Jesus does when his boat gets back over to the eastern shore. He comes to a village called Bethsaida. It's verse 22 and 23. It's actually just beyond the text that I read for you earlier, but it's very pertinent. When Jesus gets back to the eastern shore, he meets a blind man, and the blind man begs him to open his eyes. And Jesus does it. His sight is given back to him. Now isn't it interesting that just after Jesus has been talking to his disciples about spiritual blindness the first miracle he does is a sight restoring miracle. That's very interesting but it's not just interesting it's also telling because it tells us why Jesus came and why did he come? He came to open our eyes to the reality and the truth about God. That there is a God and that this living God is so so good and that he loves you and me so, so much, more than anybody else in the world, in fact, more than anyone else in this room, more than anyone you've been married to, more than any children you've had, more than the parents who brought you into this world. This degree of love is hard to fathom, but it burns brightly and it will never burn out. It will never burn out. And friends, it was because of that love that Jesus Christ finally closed his eyes when he closed him on a cross and when it all went black and when he went into that long and dark night so that our eyes might be opened, open to the presence and the love and the goodness of God, open to that right now, today, and for all eternity. Open to the one who has come to feed the famished, the one who says, come and eat at my table and I will fill you up forever because I am the bread of life. If your eyes have become dim, to this reality, here's what I want you to do. I'm gonna give you something really practical. I want you to beg and plead just like the blind man did. Get on your knees in a quiet place in your home. I've done this many times. Come to my office, I'll pray with you. Do it with a friend. Beg and plead and wait for the Lord with expectation because just as Jesus opened eyes, he still does it and he opens them wider. This is part of the gift of living under the abundance of Christ, and that is the place where you and I are invited to live. Lord, may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Amen.